heaven's got so many standard connotations, which I think we need to put a bomb under and yeah, redefine. Bust it. Start us up, Sam. I got I got a quote from Cess Lewis. Go, Sam. I bet you fifty bucks I can even guess which book. <laughs> I've only read one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where three friends admit to letting their mind wander during mass and at some point, Jen reflected while leaving the cinema. Gentlemen, how are you? Good, I'm good. That was you, wasn't it? Yes. I was checking it wasn't me. I got in this vague I'd... memory of someone genuflecting leaving the cinema, but I'm sure it wasn't me. Yeah, no, we were in a, in a movie in Hobart and yeah, I genuflected afterwards. I haven't done that, but I'm sure I've come close to it at some point. Now, Father Dave, <laughs> yes, Marty and I are quite comfortable in saying that we've sat in mass before and our mind has wandered. But as the celebrating priest, has that ever happened? Oh yeah. Part of the problem with being the priest is that you're looking at everybody, and so you see everything that's happening in the congregation. You can see that which, everyone else has wandered off. <laughs> well, no, you you end up seeing the really hilarious stuff that little kids do, or like the really awkward little moments between old couples or whatever, and. Sometimes they're just hilarious and you've got to try not to laugh. But yeah, you've got to try and pretend at least that you're focused so you can keep everybody else focused. Keep the transubstantiation going. Yeah, I, I pinned Father Dave at the start of the last episode on what we had covered so far, but how about a throw to Marty on this one? Pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> what have our last three episodes been on? Do you want to give us, a for, for the listeners, what's a little bit of a sum up, a summation? All right, number one. God created everything and it was good. He saw it was mm -hmm. good and good was probably an understatement. And then something went wrong. Sin entered the world and things escalated really fast. That was two. And then three was, what did God do about it? God came as himself into the world as a person and showed us how to live and then fixed the way back to the Father. And said, follow me. Did I, did I get it right? You did. Full marks. Are you, can, I, can I just jump in? I... I I was just reading this little C.S. Lewis quote on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, touche. <laughs> I know, obviously, because we're recording this a whole long time earlier, then it's probably going to get published. But it was the Feast of the Holy Trinity, and I, I love that feast. I just think it's beautiful. Most priests hate it because they hate having to preach on the Trinity. But I was reading this thing where C.S. Lewis was trying to talk about how hard it is to understand God. And he talks about how if you imagine a two-dimensional world with two-dimensional trees and two-dimensional rocks and mountains and two-dimensional people. And someone came into that world and tried to start explaining to people what a three-dimensional world looked like. And they would just not make sense. Like everyone would think you're talking madness. We don't comprehend anything you're saying. But it, it just struck me something of that beautiful analogy of that's what the incarnation really was. You've got God stepping into a world and then trying to explain to us what this other world looks like. And then says, come follow me, as in, it's almost like he's saying to all these two-dimensional people, come and become three-dimensional, come and become fully alive. And we're now having all these stupid arguments about whether this other dimension even exists. And we don't even understand it because we've never experienced it. Mm. But there's something beautiful about that whole thing of this is God's sal salvation. Because last time we spoke probably more about the incarnation than we did about the actual cross which I think that's probably the, the forgotten part of salvation is the fact that Jesus became human. That in itself is the beginnings of salvation. What he does upon the cross to then forgive us of our sins is very powerful or it's hugely powerful. But, but even the very fact that he's revealing to us the life that we're meant to have, which kind of brings us into today's episode, which you can explain to us, Sam. Well, I actually, if it's okay, I thought I might begin today's episode with story time. Is that okay? As you reach for your cup of tea or coffee, or in Darwin, it's probably just ice water, isn't it? It's is definitely coffee. Uh, story time. So grab your mug. I want to start with this. In northern Colombia, there is a mountain that is an isolated mountain, necessarily in a range. It just, it's a volcanic mountain. So it stands in plains. It's near sea level, but it stands at 5,700 metres high. Wow. Double Mount Kosciuszko. It's called Pico Cristobal Colón. 
I could see it on the map and I knew that I was going to be walking up towards it and I was really excited because I had heard that this particular mountain was so tall that it created its own microclimate around it. It's got its own weather system. And that in the tropics, it had snow all year round. So mm. it's quite something. And my path, my walking path, had me walking around the base of it for about four days. And genuinely excited, I walk up towards this mountain and I can't see it. All I can see is a mountain, which I got. I looked at my map and thought, well, it's the only mountain around, but that mountain only looks like the mountains here in Tasmania. It looks one to one and a half thousand metres high. And for the next three or four days, I'm walking around this mountain. It, there was really nothing spectacular about it, but the climate did change. There was a, a cool breeze. There was beautiful rainforest. I just couldn't understand how there can be a 5,700 metre high mountain here. And yet I'm pretty sure I'm not looking at it. I was genuinely disappointed when eventually I made it around uh, Pico Cristobal Colón and I was walking out towards Panama, having not seen it. I was adamant those mountains I was looking at weren't the real thing. Headed off very early the next morning and because it was very dangerous, or it had been up until that point, it was very common for me to do shoulder checks while I walk. And right on dawn, I, I was about 15 k's out of this town, I did a shoulder check and just stopped dead. Because finally, I was far enough away from those one and a half thousand meter high mountains to see that they were just the foothills and perched <laughs> in the middle was this 5,700 meter monster with snow on top with the sun already hitting it. So the sun was just rising where I was, but the, the top of it was well and truly aglow. And it just towered up above these mountains that I'd seen. I was actually so close to it that I couldn't see it. There was a sense at times of, I think my map's wrong. It just didn't make sense. But so close to it, it was so spectacular and yet couldn't see it. In this episode, we, we are talking about this new life in Christ, redemption one for us and living with Christ. At times, it's like trying to describe to someone who's never tasted salt what salt tastes like. So mm. I want to begin with that, trying to describe something that is so familiar and yet so foreign, this new life in Christ and ultimately heaven. So when was it that you first genuinely encountered God and thought to yourself, oh my goodness, that's the mountain. That's what everyone's been talking about. Yeah. I was at a uh, summer school of evangelization in Kilmore in Victoria, like 20 something years ago. I must have been in grade 10 or 11. And we were invited to be prayed with to personally to give your life to Jesus. So I went to a prayer team and I thought that was a bit bit interesting and uh, asked them to pray with me and as they were praying with me that's just sort of got really real i don't know i can't really remember much about this story to be honest with me but it was a long time ago all i know is i walked out a changed man do you have a better one father dave <laughs> <laughs> oh look mine probably sounds a bit similar i think there was also a summer school involved but i i think there's been a number of those moments like mm. I, I don't think it's ever a moment of like you know i was living in darkness and suddenly i was in the light it was it's it's like every year there's kind of been this deepening moment of just like oh my goodness it's real you know and mm. yeah it, it's a little bit like the fog just clears a little bit more and you start to see the clarity of what life actually is and, and i think i still experience those moments where it's almost like you're discovering the glory of the life that christ has given us again every day it's like jesus reveals to you a bit more of himself or takes away a bit more of your blindness and you turn a little bit more towards him and presume that you're looking straight at him and then you know a month a year later you realize there's more movement to go and it happens again mm. and each movement's so incredibly blinding yeah i think surely surely now i'm looking i'm looking i'm right there yeah, but no well even father dave you began before talking about trinity sunday yeah and only a few days ago i read and i might have read it before but I don't remember it ever sinking in. So I'm going to say, for the first time ever, I read in Genesis, and I think it was chapter 12 or 13, but it's with Abram before he's Abraham. And the Lord visits him and looks outside his tent, and there's three men standing there. He goes through these three men, and it says, the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke. But there's three of them. Yes. Interesting. There was this moment, of, um, hang on, are we looking at the Trinity here? The Lord is three. Yeah. Mm. And it's yeah. in Genesis. Mm. And I had a bit of a, a Pico Christabel cologne moment again. In a small way. That was in a weekly sense, not the, not the yearly sense. Mm. But I think, yeah, coming back to this whole thing of the new life in Christ, I was using that image at the beginning about the two-dimensional world and then someone comes to try and reveal the three-dimensional world. 
I think that's kind of what's going on. It's almost like Christ has broken into that world. Through his incarnation, he started to reveal something of this other realm of God and of heaven. By the power of his cross, he's broken the power of sin, which has sort of kept us blind to that reality. And it's like we're sort of discovering this third dimension almost. Like we're starting to appreciate height and depth and width and all that sort of stuff. But in our case, it's actually life and beauty and goodness and truth. And there's this constant discovery going deeper, which I think is beautiful because I think as Thomas Aquinas talks about heaven as being a constant deepening into the glory and truth of who God is. What we experience now in this tiny little way, we're actually going to be doing for all of eternity, just going deeper and deeper into the mystery and just thinking, oh, wow, it's even bigger than I ever thought it was. Mm. And strangely, C.S. Lewis uses that image. (laughs) In, um, I think it's the final book of the Narnia series. Yes, yes, onwards, faster and further. Yeah, basically the, the, the final judgment when the whole world kind of wraps up and they go into heaven and they step into this world, which is like Narnia, And then they kind of run deeper into it. And then they suddenly come into another world, which is even just like Narnia, but bigger and more glorious. And then they kind of go deeper and it's like the same world again, but bigger and more glorious. And then they realize and they say, it's not that this is like Narnia. Narnia was a bit like this. Yes, but so much more real. Mm. And they can run without being tired and stuff. And they just keep going deeper and deeper. and, and, And Aslan keeps calling them saying onwards, deeper, faster, further, deeper. Now, there is a real danger that this podcast may need to change its name from Sons of Thunder to Sons of C.S. Lewis eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, Sam, Sam, Sam might have to find a quote <laughs> first, but anyway. <laughs> I have to read some books. <laughs> Hang on. I, st- I think I started all this off way, way before in episode one or two with the C.S. Lewis quote about if Jesus is... Oh, the trilemma. The trilemma. You That's right. Too. Lie a lunatic lord. Yes. Yep. You guys just followed suit and didn't know when to stop. Yep. Take it too far as usual. Because there, there's another beautiful book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce, which we were talking about mm. earlier on before we started recording. Don't be intimidated. It's not that big. Easy to and read. It's not actually about divorce either. It's, no. <laughs> it's, it's about heaven. Yeah. But it's actually one of the, I, I think it's one of his most beautiful books. The, the whole basic scenario is that this guy dies. Well, no, he doesn't quite die. He just goes to heaven on a bus, almost like mm. for a day trip. A little bit of a strange scenario, but everyone steps out of this bus. Like, So these are people who have died and have gone to heaven. They step out of the bus onto the grass and they all start screaming because the blades of grass are so real that they're almost like knife blades sticking into their feet. Mm. And, the, and the problem is that they're not actually real. They're almost like still living in this half shadow. And then when it starts raining, it's almost like bullets falling from the sky because the, the raindrops are so real. Lewis talks about this idea of we live in the shadow lands, like we're not actually living the fullness of reality, whereas heaven is the fullness of reality. And so the journey of conversion is actually where we're leaving behind this half alive existence, living in shadow and actually stepping into fullness of life. In a strange way, C.S. Lewis actually gives a beautiful image of the Catholic understanding of purgatory, even though mm. I don't think he quite believed in purgatory himself, but he explains it. No, I think he could. did believe in purgatory because I, I read another quote where he said, don't our souls demand purgatory? Imagine being led into a banquet wearing filthy rags and the host says, no, no, come in, come in, you're welcome. And, and you'd say, couldn't I get washed and changed first, please? Mm. And the host might say, well, sh- sure, but it might, it'll hurt. We go, that's that's fine. I'd, I'd rather be clean to be mm. with everyone else who's clean than, than not. And alongside that, St. Thomas More, who said, earth hath no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Ooh. So not just the washing, but the restoration as well. That's right. And the extraordinary joy that would come with that. And the whole fact that that begins now. It's yeah. not just about when we're dead. Like the whole thing of the new life in Christ is that we start to step into this realness and, and new life. We start to step into that healing right now. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I've heard many stories of saints who have had visions of heaven or they have spoken about heaven or they have spoken about the intimacy of relationship with Christ, with Jesus. And they're all along the same lines, which is one of it's almost too difficult to describe the most overwhelming love imaginable, the most extraordinary joy possible. Isn't that one of the Gospels? Jesus, who no no eye has seen, no ear has heard. St. Paul, letter to the Corinthians. I thought that's a good definition. You've got no idea. (laughs) 
Yes, yeah, so St. Paul says, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Those things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Yeah. So fantabulously better than you can imagine. Orders of magnitude better. More dimensions better. <laughs> yeah. I think, Sam, what you're saying about relationship is the key thing. So often when I hear people talk about heaven or, or even people talk about new life in Christ, so much of it's about something physical Parts. and tangible. Like, yeah. like, like we always think of heaven as being the best bits of earth for all of eternity. Like your family's going to be there and your pet dog's going to be there and the mountain's made out of chocolate. and Fluffy clouds with Philadelphia cream cheese and someone playing a harp. Exactly. I actually knew a guy who played the harp who claimed that if he couldn't get to heaven by being good, he'd be able to get in through the service entrance <laughs> by taking his harp with him. When it's really mainly about playing rugby. <laughs> <laughs> I never quite yeah. understood that because rugby's... <laughs> Yeah, all that so eye good. gouging that goes on. So it's just, good. <laughs> but anyway, as I was saying, really it comes down to the fact that your heart craves love. Like, like the deepest desire of the human heart is to be loved. And that's the gift that Jesus offers. Like he doesn't, he doesn't so much offer a good feeling. I think very often people go to prayer looking to feel good or to feel some sort of consolation. But it's actually about entering into a relationship, to know that you are loved and to just sit with that and meditate upon it. And that's what satisfies the deepest yearning of the soul. And so that is both the, the new life we experience here on earth, but it's also the glory of heaven. So that's like Jesus after the incarnation, just saying, yeah, I, I know you mm. and I love you, mm. which is probably a bit hard for a lot of us to take, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> even, even though I know you, I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> but even more than that, he says, I love you with the same love that the Father loves me. You know, like, yeah, so that's if you can... a bit mind-blowing. Yeah, so if you can start to try and understand something of the Trinity, which is mind-blowing at the best of times, the, the way that God the Father loves God the Son, that infinite love, and Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. John's gospel, he's trying to say very clearly, heaven is relationship. There's one point where he says, this is eternal life, to know the Father and to know the one whom he has sent. So he's not saying heaven is this place of paradise with palm trees and all that sort of stuff. He's saying mm. it's come into a relationship with me and there you'll be free. There you'll know perfect joy. Mm. Can I ask a question? I've actually been wondering this for years. What's the difference between redemption and salvation? Well. <laughs> I'm glad it's not simple. Did you want me to answer that or do you want Father Dave to? <laughs> oh, Father Dave, mate. Take, take one each. <laughs> I'm, I'm, how about you go for redemption and I'll see what's left after that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to take a guess? Yeah. <laughs> I'll try and preempt what you're going to say. So I'm setting myself up for a fall here. I would assume that redemption is being pulled out of the mud and salvation is one of being taken home. Mm. We are redeemed from, uh, I guess you could say salvation has been, yeah. Are they one and the same or are they different? Well, redemption is a bit of a loaded word. Scripturally, the whole idea of to redeem a slave in the Old Testament. So if someone was in slavery, you would pay a price to set them free. Normally these days we talk about redemption in terms of purchasing something, you know, like a yeah, redeemed a voucher. voucher or something. Yeah. yeah. It's quite it, trivial it, really. If you... <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it, it's got that connotation of someone or something which has been, you know, held for ransom or held in slavery and you pay a price to gain that. So when I think it's in, the first letter of Peter, where he says, you know, the price that was paid for you was not silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He's basically trying to say, okay, you were redeemed. You were bought out of slavery for a price. And what that means is you now no longer belong to yourself. There's a great story of this guy by the name of C.T. Studd, Charles Studd. You ever heard of him? Chucky Studd? <laughs> no. So, uh, nope. There's a great book called The Cambridge Seven. This guy was in the first Ashes team playing for England. He was a, obviously a cricketer, one of England's greatest all-rounders around the time. He was studying at Cambridge University. Was basically, we basically had the world at his feet. He was great at sport, great academically. Nominally Anglican, but really had no interest at all in his faith. And there were a couple of American preachers doing a tour through Cambridge and some of his friends were trying to drag him along to this revival meeting and he had no interest, mostly because it was Christianity and secondly because they were American and he was English and they don't like Americans. And his name was Stud. And he, <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but eventually he went along and he, I think he sat through the first night completely bored and then for some reason went to the second night and they were talking about this idea of redemption. Christ has purchased you. He's, he's paid a price for you. And something clicked in this guy where he suddenly realized my life is not my own. I, I don't own my life. If I believe in Jesus and I want, and I believe in the existence of heaven, I want all the benefits of that. But at the same time, I'm trying to take my life back and use it for myself. It's virtually like theft. You know, like I'm stealing my life back from the person who has purchased it. This was his logic where he suddenly realized I can't do that. If my life belongs to Jesus, I've got to live completely for him. And so the next week he had training with the English cricket team and he led the whole team out to the middle of the oval and he declared to them that he was going to quit the team and give his life to be a missionary in China. And I think half the cricket team got down on their knees and gave their life to Jesus because they were so inspired by his witness. He ended up dying as a missionary in China uh, many years later. Uh, But he'd also gone through a number of countries in Africa as well. Mm. Quite a radical missionary. Did they they win the Ashes? I don't know. (laughs) Sorry, that's completely trivialising the story. And it probably shows I'm more interested in missionary work than cricket. It was the English team. They probably lost. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. This was late 1800s. <laughs> but yeah, so, so that idea of redemption is to be purchased. Yeah. The idea of salvation kind of gets a little bit, well, it gets a bit interesting because you've got a number of different words that are used. You've got this idea of justification and then salvation. And then St. Paul also throws in this idea of predestination, which has just caused all sorts of issues, that word. But anyway, so you kind of, well, in the Catholic understanding, we would talk about salvation as being almost like a two-stage process. And it comes back to the whole idea of original sin. If you imagine that original sin created four different divisions or breakages. So it broke our relationship with God. It broke our relationship with ourselves. It broke our relationship with all of the other rest of humanity. And it broke our relationship with creation. In sort of Protestant theology, they would see salvation as being a one-way thing, like it's just between me and God. So Jesus dies on the cross, I'm then justified, my relationship with God is good, and I now go to heaven. Whereas a Catholic understanding of salvation is a bit more complicated because we'd say, by the power of the cross, Jesus heals that first division between us and God. But then through the grace of Pentecost... God gives us the Holy Spirit, which starts to heal the internal division of original sin. It also creates the church, which starts to be a place of healing for that division between us and humanity. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of that, if, if we're actually working to heal our internal division and our brokenness and our sin, and we're trying to be healed with humanity, as a result of that, we become reconciled with creation as well. So this is why a number of Catholic saints would say, you know, I'm saved, but I'm yet to be saved. I mean, St. Augustine was the classic one mm. with that. God has done the work to save me, but he's then given me a grace with which I have to cooperate. Sadly, the whole Protestant Reformation argument interpreted that as being about faith and works, which unfortunately, like most arguments, everyone assumes that they know what the other person's thinking. It always amazes me when there's an argument, people automatically become omniscient. They know everything about what the other person thinks. <laughs> I saw a debate yeah, recently. Right. Because you stop listening. Yeah, you stop listening and you just assume that you know. But yeah, unfortunately, right, we've Sam. done that for 500 years. Were you saying something? <laughs> <laughs> we already know what you're going to say, Sam. Oh. <laughs> I saw no, no, a, we're listening, genuinely. I saw a debate the other day between a Catholic apologist and a Protestant apologist. And it was a one-hour-long debate. And... After about 40 minutes, I think they had 10 minutes each where they lambasted each other, but also put their cases forward. But then they had an opportunity for Q&A so they could actually ask each other questions. And it got to a point where they appear to be going around and around in circles until the Protestant apologist said, so hang on, I'm confused. Do we actually agree with each other? And the Catholic <laughs> apologist thought for a second and said, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think we do. And the audience just cracked up laughing. So they'd been at each other on two different sides. And yeah, then they actually you got, suck. <laughs> but they actually got down to the nuts and bolts. And it was on this very issue. It was on predestination and works uh, and salvation. And in the end, they realized they were actually in agreement on, I guess, the core of it. There was a little bit around the outside where they disagreed. But really what it came down to was how they understood the definition of certain words. Yes. Mm. 
And when mm. they got to the, the core of it, there actually was agreement to be found. Mm. So I've got a salvation. I remember hearing someone talking about this salvation to be saved. And what do you think about it as being saved from, you know, Jesus saved you from hell, from, this, from a place, or whether he saved you for relationship with himself? Like I've saved this piece of cake for me for later. <laughs> I think it's it's got multiple ways of understanding it. Like I was doing a talk on this recently about how if you look at that whole thing of the spiral of violence or, or the chaos that gets passed down generationally, mm. so many people are born into a family where there is trauma or there's chaos and there's mess. And, and so you don't necessarily have full freedom about what is dealt to you really. No. But it's that question of, are we destined to just keep passing it on to the next generation? The pain, the anxiety, the depression, the anger. Or is God able to step in there and actually save us from that? And so I'd say this is where salvation is so much more than just believing in Jesus. That's, that's only like step one. Mm. The whole thing is that Jesus would actually then start to step into your mess and save you from that, you know, actually start to transform you, bring healing to where there's that generational trauma, where there is anger, where there is deep depression and all the, the brokenness in your identity that's connected with that. Sure. And this comes down to, oh, everyone's going to jump in. Ready? <laughs> Paper, scissors, rock. Ready? <laughs> Who won? Everyone's got scissors. Oh, Marty, what are you doing? Scissors. You've only got half a finger. What's that? <laughs> Your scissors are broken. That's a tick. Just to clarify that Marty is missing half a finger, so he can't quite do scissors. <laughs> yeah, sure. I should, I should have picked either of the others, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> okay. Um, what was I going to say? I can't, I can't remember what you were going to say, Sam, so I'll just say what I was going to say. Sis Lewis talked about that. Talk about... Um, <laughs> If you imagine Jesus as a builder, if you're a house and Jesus is a builder and you invite him in to, to renovate your house and the first bits he might do are a bit obvious, you know, fixing the leaking roof or something because those problems were plain to see. And then you find that he wanders off into another room upstairs and is making lots of noise and you don't really quite know what's going on, but it's not altogether comfortable. And it's only afterwards you realise he had a vision for your house, which was so much bigger than yours. And he's actually building a different house. Yes. I heard a priest talk about, he's actually talking about discernment. Uh, just picking up on the building analogy, but I'm going to throw the, it in the other direction a little bit as far as relationship with Christ. Demolition. We think about relationship with Christ as going to work, working for a builder, getting instructions, what I need to do today. That's, that's prayer. As opposed to like a married couple actually being in discussion with each other and learning right. from each other and being with each other. Um, do either of you know who that priest was? I, it sounds very similar to a little cartoon that I once produced. Oh, it was you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so to, quote, to quote Father Dave Callahan. <laughs> Discernment for dummies. You can find it on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Um, Father Dave talked about that. <laughs> It was actually really good. I only found it recently. Yeah. And I had a, a look at it and I'll be honest, I, I got a lot out of it, which, which would mean if it's discernment for dummies, I fit the bill. Thanks. Don't we all? <laughs> On the work sites I've worked at, we every morning you'd have a pre-start meeting where you get everyone working there together and you'd get briefed on this is what's going on today so that everyone knows what they're doing. We do that in that industry because it works. It keeps people safe. It keeps people focused. I'm cutting in. Can you please give us your story when you held up your hand, when you're giving a safety instruction? <laughs> Having established that I've cut a finger off, which I did in a lawnmower when I was about eight years old, and it was very painful. I don't recommend it. And it's a mistake that smart people only make once. And really smart people don't ever do it all. But anyway, no, I found it really good when you're talking to um, crews of of workmen when you can hold up a piece that you've cut off and say, I don't want you, don't want this to happen to you. Because it really hurts. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, I'll try. So daily pre-start meeting. So businesses do it and work crews do it. So why wouldn't you want to do that with Jesus and ask him every day? The difference being though, that you don't just get your plans and then head off. You you spend the entire day, which you wouldn't necessarily do on the work site. You're not going to spend the whole day with each of the workers getting to know them and asking personal questions and the decisions they are making. I understand lots of people I think just don't really actually 
actively pray, mm. like listen to God. Like, you know, no, no, I'm fine. I can just I can just kick on doing what I'm doing, you know, everything's cruisy. You go, well, if you're not taking the instruction of the architect, how do you know that you're building the right thing? It does kind of throw up this question of what is the end goal? What, what's the reward? I think a lot of Christians have this idea of if, if I do good and I serve God enough, then I'll get the reward, which is heaven. Whereas I think what... I think we all into that really easily because we live in a transactional, contractual world. And it's so all, all I understand is I'll give you this, you give me that. But if you think of it more like a marriage where the the love is the reward mm. like like the relationship is the reward and what i anything i'm doing is purely for the sake of falling more in love with this other person you know like i'm trying to understand them better so going back to this discernment for dummies the opening episode talks about that difference between the laborer who is re- relating very functionally as opposed to a married couple where they're still going to be asking each other what do you want me to do but it's for a whole different purpose Get because milk <laughs> oh, not again <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately you're trying to discover the heart of the other person you know and so in all the interactions all the trivial little jobs you do back and forward the end goal is very different it's about falling in love mm. and sadly that gets forgotten in christianity like i think a lot of people have this idea of a god who is very distant or who is very cold and functional and somehow is going to reward us for being a good laborer, whereas really it's got to be about this intimacy. You know, that, that mm. is the new life. It, it's about being loved. And we end up with all these counterfeits as a result, and I think probably the number one counterfeit at the moment is probably Simon Cowell, who heads America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent. Everyone wants to be affirmed and have their moment. They want to know that they are special. They want mm. to do something and then receive the glory of that or the love the judges will often say if, if, if one's really good they'll say to the person on stage i hope you're feeling the love of the audience right now they're, we're with mm. you we love you they only ever say that when they're really good until you sing the wrong note and then we we'll hate you you suck sucks <laughs> again there's a bit of a, a contractual view of it which is if you do something phenomenal and great then you will be loved mm. and you will be praised and you'll be affirmed and you'll, you'll have your, the quote I hate the most, I think, your moment to shine. Time to shine's better because it rhymes. But What's that? <laughs> Time to Go shine on. is a better quote because it rhymes. That's all. Actually, I heard that at your son's soccer <laughs> game years ago. There was, it was the worst soccer game I've ever seen because uh, they were only little kids. It was yep. probably grade one or two. And it was just a mass of players following the ball kicking each other basically and kicking the ball into each other and all of a sudden the ball popped out and one of the kids ran after it and he's, he's got the, the break everyone else ran after him except one kid who stood at the back and just yelled go michael it's your time to shine <laughs> take that least, kid off at least he's a team player <laughs> so how about this for a uh a, a different summary of the charisma message god created the world and it was good and mankind gave it all to adam and eve who through their sin and we've all done this we gave it all away to the serpent jesus came to buy it all back he said what are you gonna what are you gonna buy it back with so i'm gonna buy it back with me what do you reckon can i throw in a, a curly one here god is omnipotent Meaning he knows all things. No. So omnipotent means he is all powerful. Omniscient means he knows. Omniscient. What's omni and omnipresent? He is everywhere. Yeah. So which one am I looking for? I don't know. I've got to wait till the rest of the sentence, Uh, and then I'll be able to tell you. Okay, I'm going to start again. I'm going to start again. (laughs) So God is all knowing. (laughs) In English, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So God is all knowing. So. Does God know beforehand that we will turn away, but God is okay with that because in doing so, we are going to then actually learn what love is because it has to be a choice. I think that's largely right, apart from but God's okay with that. I think he tolerates it, but I don't think he's like cool with it. I think this is where it gets a little bit philosophical and you need to start wrestling with the concept of time Yeah, because Mm. people take the logical conclusion saying, well, if God always knew I was going to sin, then is my sin determined? And there are some other religions that think that way. They, they don't quite believe in free will because they believe that the all-knowingness of God means that I was destined to sin. Well, there's quite a few Christians who'd even believe that. Yes. Whereas if we understand that God is outside of time mm. and therefore God, and then this is where it's hard to understand, that God sees everything in a perpetual now. 
So is this so, like a two-dimensional person trying to explain three-dimensional? Yes. So God is able to see. I think that's reasonably simple. If you if you think of the eternal now, if God sees your if God sees my actions now and my actions tomorrow, and he's because he's outside of time, he can see both of those at the same time. Therefore, he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, not because it's determined. my choice is determined yeah. and predetermined, but just because he's already seen it happen. And that's the difference. Yeah. So so this is where in Catholic theology we would be able to say God knows everything, but we still have free will. Hmm. There was a ancient philosopher this guy boethius who tried to use the image of someone standing on top of, the, of a mountain who can see every part of the road at the same time whereas the person who's on the road can only see where he's currently standing you know is, see, is this the same mountain that sam walked around no is he in columbia no <laughs> it's a metaphorical mountain and a metaphorical road oh. or a philosophical road it's a metaphorical mountain and a philosophical road <laughs> but the whole thing was just an allegory so if you're not confused we can move on Therefore, God knew how things were going to turn out, and yet we still had complete free will in the process. Mm. We often use the term, oh, happy fault, because through Adam and Eve's sin, Jesus enters the world, God enters sorry, the world. Sorry, we often use the term, oh, happy fault. I've used it once in my life, last week, I think. We use it once a year at Easter in the Easter Vigil. <laughs> And then occasionally people repeat it in between. Right. You ever been there, Marty? <laughs> <laughs> But also, oh, happy faults in that we get to genuinely encounter love mm. in the person Jesus. We get to experience redemption. We get to experience healing. We also get to experience hope. The end of Dante's Purgatorio, when he's on the top of the mountain and he's finished purgatory and there's two rivers. This is the, symbolically the, the Garden of Eden that he's sort of got back to before going into heaven. And there's two rivers. And he has to sort of swim across both of them. And the first one, I think, he swam through to forget his sin, which allowed him to accept God's love, and then swam through the second one to remember. And then at the end of that process, could remember how, how bad he had been in the context of having already fully experienced the magnitude of God's love or something like that. <laughs> I, I think that's just a fascinating question of when we are in heaven, are we going to remember anything of earth? And the same way that we don't remember anything of being in the womb, mm. people often use that analogy to say, you know, in a sense, our life here on earth is almost like being in the womb, preparing for our true birth into heaven. How much will we actually remember? Or how dull will this time on earth that we have spent actually be compared yeah. to heaven? Pretty sure I remember the Sons of Thunder podcasts. <laughs> will, will we only remember love you know so so saint paul mm. says in mm. 1 corinthians 13 about how everything else is going to pass away except for love and and even where it talks about how every tear will be wiped away there'll be no memory of suffering or pain is it the sort of thing where the only thing that triumphs is love so the only things we'll actually remember of earth are the times where we have loved people or been loved by people and does that then put everything else in perspective suddenly mm. sin is not that important anymore because you're not going to remember it like when people kind of think oh well i may as well have some fun now so i can at least remember the fun afterwards how does that change your perspective of sin if you know that you're just not going to remember it, it just doesn't quite become as attractive anymore mm. yeah uh, can i ask a different question it's related i'll tell you my memory bible verse and you tell me where it comes from <laughs> <laughs> What proves that Christ loves us is that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Yeah, Romans 5. Knew it was Paul somewhere. Verse 7. Romans 5, 7, 5, 7, Romans 5, 7. <laughs> so I'd always thought of that, that verse, I'd always viewed as a before and after, cause and effect kind of, you were bad and Jesus did this while you were still bad and, and therefore that's how you can tell by looking back that he loved you as opposed to a continuous kind of, you're still far from perfect. And what proves that Jesus still loves you now is that he died for you in your state now, not just in your state when you were even worse or, or how mm. you perceive that. Mm. Continuous process. Not, not a static. But I think it also shows really the heart of what that salvation looks like because like i was saying before where if, if we think of salvation as being this functional exchange where i believe in jesus i believe he died on the cross and then i now get to go to heaven whereas if you look at it in the light of a love relationship 
you know, particularly something like marriage where someone knows you so well, they know all the reasons why you shouldn't be loved and they still choose to love you in all your bad habits and faults. And somehow it's like they draw the beauty out of you. Like you gradually mm. become a better person because of that merciful grace that they give to you. And so really, this is where the sanctification process of Christianity, we don't become holy because of trying harder. We become holy because of letting ourselves be loved and actually meditating on how much we're loved in our rottenness uh, mm. or our sinfulness. And it's when we start to think, hang on, he's actually drawing out the beauty and the goodness. I'm starting to see myself differently. It's a very human dynamic. Like we see it so often in, in marriage or in human relationship. But sadly, so many Christians miss that. You've got mm. so many grumpy Christians in, in church who have never really let themselves be transformed by the love of God. Mm. Mm. Marty and I studied engineering with a guy who had said to me, so he was quoting, I think is Romans 6, that we are dead to sin. And his take on it was, I'm dead to sin because I've accepted Jesus into my life. Therefore, I can do anything I want to. And his life was one of uh, very much feeding the senses, if we'll put it that way. So I think we need to come back to this idea that heaven is relationship with Christ. You know, and, and that new life is all about being loved in your, in your mess, that, that merciful love that's poured out, that, that's what heals us and transforms us. Mm. So we begin with both immersing into the word of God, so the scripture, into the sacraments, Eucharist reconciliation in particular. Ultimately to that vocation in life is that we, we're called into family. So whether it be as a, as a married person or in consecrated life, as we learn how to love, we've got to leave our selfishness behind and our hearts are changed. Mm. Mm. That's hard. Yeah. And that's, that's basically the experience of purgatory. So St. John of the Cross, when he talks about the whole journey of purification, he says, well, very quick summary. So like if, if God is love and heaven is basically to enter into the unity of the Trinity, which is what it says in the catechism that we, in paragraph 260, you can go check that one out. How did you know which paragraph? Because I quoted it so often. It's, it's what, okay, okay, okay. Not, okay. not many people... You, don't, you not, don't know every paragraph? No, no, no. <laughs> right. It's just okay, my right. favourite. Is, the, the, is that deification? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, the Orthodox Church is much more explicit on this. It it's kind of gets forgotten in the Catholic Church, unfortunately. But it's this idea that we're actually meant to enter into sharing in the very nature of God. And so mm. if God is complete love and I'm not quite complete love, then something's got to change, you know, so... The journey of holiness is about becoming love and having everything that is not love stripped away from me. And so the reason why God sets us up in vocation is because a vocation is a place where you've got to learn how to love, be it marriage, priesthood, consecrated life, even single life. If single life is, is truly a vocation, it's going to stretch you in love. It's not just living as a comfortable bachelor or whatever. Don't look at me. We're all looking at you, Sam. <laughs> I'm just talking about John of the Cross. Marty's looking at you. So, John of the Cross has got this idea that anything in us that is not love at the point when we die then has to be purified. Mm. That's the basic understanding of purgatory. But anything that we do on earth, every time we choose love over selfishness, it hurts. It's painful. And he would suggest that that is actually something of the pain of purgatory that we're experiencing now. It's, it's that purgation, that purification of mm. the selfishness, the not love being stripped away. So it's actually a really good thing when love hurts. It means you're kicking goals. You're, you're heading in the right direction. Oh, well, thank you. Well, blessed oh, this kind of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> <laughs> he meant all makers of dairy. <laughs> <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm. When we mourn, it's when we're poor in spirit that, that we learn the true value of love. There is something really blessed in that. I was actually saying to Marty last night, we were chatting on the phone, and I was remembering a... Uh, I went to a summer school of evangelization up in New South Wales after graduating from university. I had been at the summer school for three or four days and two young women my age came up to me and said, excuse me, we don't know each other. They introduced themselves. So I introduced myself and they said, do you happen to know Marty McFarlane? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I've, I'm actually best mates with him. We went through university together and they roared laughing and they said, we've been watching you for the last couple of days going, oh my goodness, that guy over there, whoever he is, is like a really tall version of Marty. 
had the same mannerisms apparently apparently our laughs were similar and whilst a lot more beautiful. we were well thank you you read better <laughs> We're two states apart. We don't look anything alike, and yet our mannerisms were the same, and they, they could pick that up. Question, the reason I brought it up, how much do we actually reflect Christ? How much? Obviously, Marty and I had probably spent a little bit too much time together to the point where, he, where we had absorbed some mannerisms. But how much time are we actually spending with Christ? We can do it now, or you can do it in purgatory. Yeah, and apparently the hot tip is... Now's better. Yeah, now's better. I've been uh, I've been trying to when I wake up and I say my glory be to say to the Holy Spirit I want to be open to doing what you want me to today so please help me to do that. So before you can finish the prayer, your wife has already said what? No sugar. <laughs> yeah, some things some things are obvious and some things are <laughs> more subtle. <laughs> Could I go back to that Catechism two hundred and sixty, Father Dave? Mm. What exactly does the Church promise us? This deification concept, right? I have a suspicion that what the church promises us is about a bazillion times bigger than what any other religion promises. Oh, definitely. And I don't think that's appreciated in this world of, you know, everything's equal or, you know, there's truth in every religion. No one ever says, you know, but not to the same extent. But the promise, the promise of the church, the, this, this life within the Trinity is... Complete unity. It's so much better than the conceptions of heaven that are put forward by any other religion. And by most Christians. I, yeah. I think most people dumb down the idea of heaven because we think that no one's going to quite get this deification thing. Second letter of St. Peter verse 4 he basically talks about how god's given us this grace of the holy spirit to free us from sin so that we can become participants in the divine nature Mm. in the divine nature participants in the divine nature we're not just going to be spectators in heaven it's not like we get to heaven and we get to hang out with our family and friends and our pet dog and somewhere god's going to be off in the distance on a throne jesus pops in to say g'day how you doing yeah and generally we try and leave him alone because we're afraid he's going to make the situation boring or something it's actually that we're going to be right there in this heart of god like because it's about relationship once again john of the cross built so much of his theology on this idea where he says that we will become divine by participation in relationship with Jesus. So think of it like a marriage, you know, where Miss Brown marries Mr. Smith. She becomes Mrs. Smith by virtue of marriage. Like she takes on his name, his identity, his possessions, everything, takes on a whole new identity and family purely by nature of the relationship. So if, if we are now in this sort of intimate marriage-like relationship with Jesus, we now take on his whole identity and start to share in his very nature being eternal which is a pretty good deal. And like we said, we start being loved with the same love that the Father loves the Son. But I think this starts to change our whole understanding then of who gets to heaven because we've, we've kind of got this idea that... No, nice people. Nice well, people. Yeah, it, it was summed up once by saying, you know, we, we believe that heaven doesn't exist, but if it does, everyone gets to get in there. No one misses out. Like that's sort of the modern secular mm. understanding. And if, if heaven is paradise, we think, well, surely if God is love, he should give us paradise, you know, otherwise he's not loving. But if heaven is like a marriage relationship, it changes the equation completely because it becomes then a question of whether I want to be in that relationship. Yeah, there's choice. So it's the ones who, the ones who say, I do. Exactly, yeah. And if you've spent your whole life saying, I don't, then even if it's offered to you, you probably don't want it. Mm. The, the Catholic understanding of hell as it says in the catechism, is that hell is a place of self-exclusion from God. We don't believe that God sends people to hell. We believe that we send ourselves to hell. And most people would look at that and say, well, how does that make sense? Why would anyone send themselves to hell? But if you think of it then in terms of this relationship, this marriage with God, it becomes this question of, do you actually want to be in that relationship? Because there's probably a whole bunch of people who don't. I heard from one of the saints that in hell, no one loathes you more than yourself. Mm. So you're talking about John of the Cross, I was going to say earlier, but at length. I <laughs> I haven't read any John of the Cross, but I did go to a silent retreat once with Carmelites. And awesome. um, and when I was having my session with the abbot, it, it may, he must have been pretty good because I can't remember what his name was, but I remember one thing that he said, which was apparently something from John of the Cross. The concept was dying and standing in front of Jesus and Jesus saying, I love you, do you love me? 
And again, you can't be deceptive at that point. Your heart's open. Yeah, well, the response in of itself isn't so much through what we say. Our response is, is what is it in the heart. Yeah, it's what we do. And that was sort of the preamble. And John of the Cross's prayer was that, therefore, let me learn to love you, Lord, the way you want to be loved, so that, you know, when, <laughs> when the time comes to be making this decision, or this decision probably happens many, many, many times throughout your life, that I'm able to love you the way you want to be loved mm. and say yes. Yeah, so John of the Cross saw the whole equation as being about love. I mean, there was, there was a number of other saints who understood this idea of if heaven is to be immersed into the Trinity. I was reading it recently of one of the early church fathers who talked about how that line where Jesus says, no one has ever come down from heaven except the Son of Man and no one will ever go up to heaven except the Son of Man. That would suggest that it is, there's only one person who gets into heaven and that's Jesus. And so the degree to which we have become Jesus is whether we get into heaven or not. So he's mm. putting like his massive emphasis on allowing ourselves to be transformed into Christ through living our baptism, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's almost like God will look at you and see to what degree have you become like Jesus, you know, and then you enter into the Trinity. comes back to what Sam was saying about looking like you, Marty, or acting like you. That's <laughs> um, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. She had uh, something similar to say regarding heaven, being that the gate of heaven is very low. Only the humble can enter it. Mm. And the ultimate example of humility, of humbling yourself, is God, is Jesus. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear about that too, isn't he? He didn't say, I know the way. He said, I am the way. I am the way. Mm. Well, shall we wrap up there, gentlemen? Time for you to end us in prayer, Sam. May I conclude in prayer? (laughs) In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your love. We thank you, Lord, for calling us into relationship with you, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to shine a light on the areas of our lives where we need to let go, where we need to invite you in. We thank you, Lord, so much for your patience. And uh, we also thank you, Lord, in particular for the work, the works of C.S. Lewis. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us both through each other, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through your word and through the sacraments. We thank you, Lord, so much for for the gift of this day. And Father Dave, could we please ask for your blessing? Well, we pray you pray your blessing upon us and anyone who's listening, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And when I said your blessing, I meant could you bless us with God's blessing? That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. So you read Don Camillo, Father Dave? No. The very first one in the Don Camillo omnibus where Don Camillo is so pissed off with Pepone the Mayor, He's just come to confession for wanting to baptise his son, Lennon. Don Camillo is so pissed off about it. And he's in a sacristy talking to Jesus, saying, that guy, that guy out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch him. I'm going to hit him. And Jesus says to him, no, your hands were made for blessing, not fighting. He said, okay, Lord. He walked out and kicked him. <laughs> and Capone got up and said, oh, I've been, I've been waiting 10 minutes for that. <laughs>